who is who is Jesus? Is Jesus just a human being and is he not divine as well? That's the question that we'll tackle in today's episode of The Apologetics. Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. So, first of all, sorry for those of you who were tuning in live and were uh, expecting to see me start talking right at 6 p.m. I did actually start talking right at 6 p.m., uh, but for some reason, the um, streaming uh, setup that I have didn't work quite as expected. Um, normally, when I stream live to Rethinking Hell live, which is what I've been doing uh, for the past year or so on YouTube, um, the stream starts as soon as I start streaming from my software to the YouTube server um, but for some reason it looks like I have to actually go into the YouTube studio and say go live once it sees that I'm streaming to it don't know why that is uh, but I think it's working now uh, Peter says that it's working now in the YouTube chat um, if anybody else well you won't know if it's not working for you so if you are somebody other than Peter please confirm in the chat that uh, that it's working so I, I can know that uh, that everything is all set up correctly um, before I get started, I have a couple of things I want to talk about briefly. First of all, thank you, R. Goski, um, or Goski for saying that we're good to go, so I won't worry about it anymore. Um, today we're going to be talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, uh, but before we do, I want to cover just a little bit of, um, uh, uh, you know, announcements type stuff. First of all, um, this show, The Apologetics, is part of the Trinity Commission, which is a um, network of, of shows and podcasts that are put together by staff and uh, faculty and students or alumni of um, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, where I am also an adjunct professor of Bible and theology. So if you're looking for a higher Christian education, um, a an undergraduate, graduate, or even postgraduate degree in an area of apologetics or some area of Christian theology or something like that, and you can't afford the time or money that you would have to spend going to getting your education from a traditional brick and mortar institution, um, then please consider going to trinitysem.edu, that's S-E-M, short for seminary, trinitysem.edu, um, and find out, uh, get, some, get some information there, maybe reach out and ask to be contacted. Um, we, it's an incredible faculty that I'm really Really honored and proud to be a part of not just uh, Jonathan Pritchett and Braxton Hunter, who are probably most well known in terms of their association with Trinity Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. I'll just start saying Trinity Seminary from now on. Um, not just them, and, and the reason I say they're well known is because they host Trinity Radio, which is the uh, YouTube show associated with Trinity Seminary. Um, but also Leighton Flowers, the host of Soteriology 101, and Steve Gregg, the host of The Narrow Mind. Um, and by the way, all those shows, Trinity Radio, The Narrow Mind, um, Soteriology 101, Theopologetics, and a show hosted by a couple of students of Trinity Seminary called Bible Brodown. Uh, those, those five shows are all part of that Trinity Commission that I just mentioned. If you want to find out more about those, you can find it on Facebook by searching Facebook for uh, the Trinity Commission. Um, but if you are also interested in 
uh, getting a higher education, then I'd encourage you to check out the details at trinitysem.edu um, so you can learn from not just me, but the other fine professors that I just mentioned a moment ago. One really cool thing I'm excited about in terms of being a part of this network is that, um, and, and for that matter, part of the seminary itself, is that uh, we professors and, and students at, at, at Trinity don't agree with each other on everything. We do on the essentials of the faith, uh, but on secondary non-essentials, you're um, we, we disagree with one another. Um, and, you know, J Jonathan Pritchett and Braxton Hunter have talked about how cool it is that uh, students at um, Trinity Seminary could see like a, a, a they could w listen to a uh, debate between Leighton Flowers and me on Unbelievable, the radio, uh, Unbelievable radio show with Justin Brierley um, on the topic of Calvinism versus uh, provisionism, as Leighton uh, Flowers calls it. Um, so it's, it's a school where you're not going to be indoctrinated into any particular secondary non-essential of the faith. You're going to be you're going to learn from professors who disagree with one another. Um, and the same is true of our shows. Um, next in the uh, next episode of The Apologetics, two weeks from today, um, I plan to address the question, is election arbitrary in Calvinism? Because on Leighton Flowers' show, he very often uses the word arbitrary to describe uh, election in Calvinism. And so I'll be addressing that. So not just at the school, but also in our respective shows as part of the Trinity Commission, you'll get to hear us professors kind of cross our proverbial swords a little bit, all the while, hopefully, Lord willing, treating each other with brotherly love and respect. Um, so I'm pretty excited to be a part of all of that, and I'd encourage you to check out both the Trinity Commission and Trinity Seminary. Um, Let's see here. Okay, uh, a number of people have asked if I would please put these episodes of The Apologetics um, up in audio form in the old The Apologetics podcast feed, and I have indeed started to do that. Um, now, I'm going to be having visuals, uh, PowerPoint slides, and things like that in many of my episodes, and so there will be a little bit something missed if you just listen to the audio feed. Uh, but nevertheless, if, if you're the kind of person who listens to a lot of material in the car while you're driving or whatever, and you don't want to use a ton of bandwidth playing a YouTube video that you can't watch anyway, uh, then you can just search iTunes for The Apologetics. Um, you can search a number of other podcatchers, and it's there. And, you know, the the... There's like a hundred and some episodes that were from a number of years ago, and then uh, two weeks ago, uh, the this the first episode of this YouTube show, I went ahead and uploaded the audio form, uh, audio version of that. So that's now in the feed, and is if you subscribe to that podcast feed, you'll get all of the episodes. Uh, hopefully, no more than a few days after I've streamed live on YouTube. So hopefully that uh, appeases some of you who were who were looking for that. Um, Lastly, I, okay, so the very first episode of The Apologetics, I covered the issue of the resurrection from the dead, and I wanted to let you know that I think the debate the next day that I told you about in that episode went very well. Uh, I think that the Christian view, which is that the saints will one day be raised physically from the grave, that is the Christian view, and it's the biblical view, um, I think that came out on top, and many, many people have said that um, the, the, my, my opponent, who is a heretic, his, his view, his denial of of bodily resurrection uh, really fell apart, especially during cross-examination. So um, I'm hoping that you enjoyed the first episode of The Apologetics, but I would encourage you to watch that debate. Uh, it's at um, the YouTube show hosted by Eli Ayala called Revealed Apologetics, and you can just go to youtube.com slash revealed apologetics, and you'll be able to find our debate there. Uh, and then reach out to me and let me know what you think. The um, uh, email address that you can reach me at is up on the screen. Thanks to Peter Grice for putting this artwork together um, that you can see on the screen. 
and uh, and I'd be happy to discuss the topic with you further, uh, especially if you are um, considering hyperpreterism or are yourself a hyperpreterist. Of course, you wouldn't call yourself that. You'd probably call yourself a full preterist. Um, but I would especially appreciate hearing from you if um, if I've if if the debate got you to think, and if you'd like to um, f uh, run any questions you might have by me, because I think it's a really grievous error, and I'd love to lovingly, hopefully, again, Lord willing. Um, uh, sort of help you to to get out of that um, out of that false view. So I hope to hear from you. Um, I guess that's all I've got uh, in future episodes of the Apologetics. I'll probably have more announcements from from episode to episode to discuss. But I think that's good for now. Let's go ahead and dive into the topic of today, which is the deity of Christ. And much of what I'm going to be, or everything I'm going to be sharing with you today, is um, is going to come from this book, this Two Views debate book that I published with a prominent Unitarian philosopher named Dale Tuggy. He is the affirmative and I am the negative. And the question is, is Jesus human and not divine? Question mark. Uh, Dale Tuggy believes that Jesus is human and he's not divine, so he answers that question in the affirmative. I think Jesus is human and divine, and so I answer the question in the negative. Um, this book that we co-wrote was based on an earlier live debate that we did in person, but this expands a lot on that original debate. And so if you've seen the debate, the book will have a lot more in it. Um, and this YouTube um, show that you're watching right now will have some more in it that wasn't in that original debate as well. Um, but uh, but there's still a lot more in the book that I'm not going to be covering in this show. So if you are interested in getting your hands on all of the material, the cross-examination between Dale Tuggy and I, our concluding statements, and a number of other stuff that you're not going to get in our original live debate or in this show, then you can just go to Amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date, that link that's showing on the screen, um, and you can get your your hands on a um, paperback edition, a copy of the book, or even a digital Kindle edition. Um, and the great thing about... The, a published book is that if you're a, uh, a student, maybe you're a student at Trinity Seminary, uh, or maybe you're a student somewhere else, and you, or maybe you're a, you're not a student any longer, but you like to publish journal articles and books. Well, the great thing about a book like this one is that you can cite it in your academic works, and it'll be a legitimate citation. Um, so I hope you'll you'll check it out. But um, if you don't, I won't take offense, and hopefully some of what I cover here will be helpful to you. Um, what I want to do is cover three areas in brief. Um, I don't, I'm not going to go too very long today. And in future episodes of the show, I will address certain texts in greater depth, certain concepts and theological issues in greater depth than I do in this, um, in this initial episode on the deity of Christ. So I'm not going to go extremely deep today. But what I want to do is cover three things. I want to cover um, history and tradition. I'm sort of lumping those together. Um, logic and definitions. And I'll explain what I mean by that when I get there. And then thirdly, um, scripture. So those are the three things I'm going to be discussing today. Um, let's begin with history and tradition. But before we do, let me tell you why I think it's important that this topic or any other topic in Christian theology be discussed um, within its historical context. Um, in other words, uh, sola Scriptura, the Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura, contrary to many of its, uh, the thinking of many of its critics, does not mean you and your Bible under a tree alone trying to figure everything out on your own. The the people who say no creed but but the Bible or or or, or no you know no creed but Jesus or whatever, um, they're that's a creed, uh, and 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 people who claim that they're not following any sort of traditions are blinded by their own traditions, um, or blinded to their own traditions in many cases. 
cases. Um, the reality is, is that Christian theology isn't meant to be done in a historical vacuum. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and we need to um, think about things with their historical context, with that historical context in mind, and consider what those giants that have come before us have said. And as proof of that, I offer Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then, of course, there are passages that talk about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to individual believers in the church. But here, individual believers are themselves gifts to the church. Um, and in one example of this list of people that are gifts to the church are teachers, and presumably those teachers have the spiritual gift of teaching mentioned in other texts in scripture. So you can imagine we've got the Holy Spirit um, working in the, uh, through the gift, the spiritual gift of teaching in teachers that are themselves gifts to the church ever since the time of Jesus for some nearly 2,000 years now. Um, to ignore um, and to treat as if it's totally irrelevant and, and able to be just, you know, um, overthrown in the, you know, at the drop of a hat is to ignore the fact that the Holy Spirit has been working in this way throughout church history. And so what I want to do is uh, begin my treatment of the deity of Christ by arguing, and I would say demonstrating, that historically Christians have identified Jesus as Yahweh, the one God of Israel, from the beginning. His deity and incarnation have always been definitional of Christianity. Now, let me be clear about something. Um, in the debate, Dale Tuggy uh, misrepresented what I was arguing here. He, he, uh, and he's done this since. He, he, he pretends as though what I'm arguing is that Christians were Trinitarians from the beginning. That's not my claim. I do believe in the Trinity. I think that the, uh, the Nicene Creed that codifies uh, the Trinitarian doctrine is, is right and was a proper historical development. Um, but prior to that point, what Christians were, I think, trying to do was to make sense of the fact that Jesus is Yahweh, and yet there's also only one God. The, that one God being Yahweh. So you, if you look at the um, the the Christian the, the writings of Christians leading up to the Nicene uh, the, the the Council of Nicaea, what you will see, I think, are Christians trying to make sense of those two facts that Jesus is Yahweh and that there is only one being that is God that is Yahweh. Um, that doesn't mean that Christians were unsaved prior to the formulation of the Nicene Creed. It just means that the Nicene Creed captures what Christians were thinking prior to that point, but um, helping to flesh out the bones, uh, flesh out the concept a little bit more and explain things that were up until that point um, still kind of in flux and Christians were thinking about. Um, so that's what I'm going to be arguing here, is that even if they weren't yet full-blown Trinitarians, nevertheless, the earliest Christians um, identified Jesus as Yahweh. So I'll start with the Nicene Creed that I mentioned a moment ago. This was in 325 AD, or as scholars like me are supposed to say nowadays, CE, Common Era. Um, the Nicene Creed says, we believe in one Lord Jesus, very God of very God, begotten, not made... By him all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. 
So you can see the Christians at the Council of Nicaea here affirming that um, that Jesus is indeed truly God, as much God as God the Father is, and that it was not a point in time where he uh, where he was made. He was begotten, which doesn't mean made. It doesn't mean created. Um, but he is truly every bit as much God as God the Father. Um, but of course, oh, and and here's one thing that was that really fascinated me as I pr uh, prepared my written portions of that two views debate book I mentioned a moment ago. The creeds that were um, uh, by Arians or Arian sympathizers after the Nicene Creed, nevertheless, still treated Jesus as this um, as Yahweh himself, as being uh, uncreated God. So, for example, the Fourth Creed of Antioch, some 16 years after Nicaea, this was an Arian sympathizing uh, council. They said, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God from God, by whom all things were made. And they anathematize Christ, uh, professing Christians who say there was a time when Jesus did not exist, when the Son did not exist. Uh, the same thing is true uh, 10 years later in the first creed of Sirmium. Uh, this is uh, 351 CE. Our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, by whom all things were made, he says. So again, the, the, the creed is confessing that Jesus is the creator of all things. And it again anathematizes those who say there was a time when the Son did not exist. So, fascinatingly, not just the Nicene Creed, but the Arian sympathizing responses to the Nicene Creed also uh, affirm the genuine deity of Jesus Christ and the, um, the, the eternal existence of the Son, even though they weren't comfortable embracing full-fledged Nicene Christology. Um, now, of course, I've just gone here through creeds that are in the um, that are in the first half of the uh, fourth century, the first half of the three hundreds, and then ever so slightly uh, the second half with three fifty one. But this wasn't a new development in the fourth century. Christians prior to this point had uh, indeed affirmed that the Son is uh, Yahweh, that Jesus Christ is incarnate Yahweh. Um, so for example, Ignatius of Antioch, he's one of the earliest Christian writers that we that we have. Um, he was, uh, uh, he died in 110 CE, and so he was writing earlier than that. Um, and, if, and if you go back to as early as say 95 AD, there are many people who think scripture was still being written at that time because they think the book of Revelation was written um, in uh, the mid-90s. So we're talking about a writer here who is almost overlapping with the writing of Scripture itself. That's how early he is. And in his epistle to Polycarp, he speaks of Jesus as the eternal, the invisible, who became visible for our sake, the impalpable, the impassable, who suffered for our sake. This is the language of the eternal, invisible, uh, impassable God becoming uh, temporal and visible and, and, and able to suffer. Now, what's interesting is that in my debate with Dale Tuggy, basically he just dismissed Ignatius of Antioch um, because there are a tiny handful of scholars who question whether the um, what's called the middle uh, reclension of Ignatius of writings are authentic. But they're a tiny minority of the scholarship, the la vast majority of which recognizes the authenticity of Ignatius of Antioch's middle reclension of writings. Um, and so I think this is pretty clearly an example of somebody just 
just wanting to dismiss evidence that goes contrary to um, to his claim. But it's not just Ignatius of Antioch. He is probably the earliest that, I, that I'll be quoting from here. This is, again, 110 CE or earlier. But just a little bit later, 50 years later, in 160 CA, CE, uh, Justin Martyr says Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts in the Old Testament, where he's with Moses and Aaron speaking to them in the pillar of the cloud. So we see here Justin Martyr saying that Jesus is uh, the pre-incarnate Yahweh speaking to Moses and Aaron from the pillar of the cloud. Uh, ten years later, Melito of Sardis uh, in 170 CE says that he who is creator together with the Father, he that hung up the earth in space was himself hanged up. He that fixed the heavens was fixed with nails, God put to death. Uh, neither in our live debate nor in our book debate did Dale Tuggy even address Milito of Sardis, which I think is um, telling. Uh, in that somewhere in that latter half of the second century, the writer of the epistle to Diognetus says that God has sent from heaven and placed among men him who is the truth and the holy and incomprehensible word who is the very creator and fashioner of all things. Irenaeus of Lyon, writing in that same second half of the uh, second century, or maybe even slightly earlier, says, Therefore, neither would the Lord, nor the Holy Spirit, nor the apostles have ever named as God, definitely and absolutely, him who was not God, unless he were truly God. And what is he talking about? He goes on to give an example of what he's talking about. Psalm 45, 6, in which he says the Spirit designates both of them by the name of God, both him who is anointed as Son and him who does anoint, that is, the Father. He'd just gotten done saying that the Spirit wouldn't do that unless the person he's naming as God is God definitely and absolutely. And that's in an Psalm 45, 6 is an example of, of where he says the Spirit's doing that of both the Father and the Son. Uh, Tertullian, um, this is an author that Dale Tuggy mistakenly claims to have been a Unitarian and, and to have believed that Jesus Christ uh, came to exist at some point in time. Um, but, but like I said, Dale Tuggy's mistaken on that. Tertullian says that when God had not yet sent out his word, he still had him within himself, both in company with and included within his very reason. Um, now, he goes on to compare what he's talking about to the way that a human's, uh, an ordinary human being's reason is almost like a second person in his own mind. But then he says it's only much more fully transacted in God. So Dale Tuggy's response to this in our debate was that he's using an analogy and that, you know, a, a, the reason in a person's mind isn't really a second person. But, but in so doing, Tuggy ignored the fact that Tertullian says that what he's talking about is only much more fully transacted in God himself. So Tertullian doesn't think the sun uh, came into existence at some point in time. He thinks that the sun was within God's being prior to the point at which he was begotten, um, much more fully transacted as a second person in God's mind, as uh, much more fully than uh, reason might be in a hu an ordinary human's own mind. So um, these are just a sampling. You know, we could um, go into other writers, and we do in the book, so I'd encourage you to check it out. But as you can see, beginning from as, as early as 110 CE and stretching all the way through um, the second century writers and into the fourth century creeds, both uh, Nicene and anti-Nicene, um, they all affirmed that Jesus Christ is true deity, uh, Yahweh, uh, the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So with that in mind, 
we, sh we should take extremely seriously this unanimous historical testimony from the from the uh, the church in whose teachers the holy spirit has been working we ought not to overturn that without the absolute um ex most extremely compelling evidence possible now we're going to get to uh, some scriptural evidence in a moment but um the reality is there is no biblical evidence against the deity of christ um, even, I mean, people like Dale Tuggy will claim to be offering biblical evidence, but they're not. What they're doing is they're trading on um, logic, logical concepts, and they're abusing definitions of words. And, and what they're doing is they're, they're pointing to biblical texts that make clear Jesus is human, um, and texts in which Jesus refers to his father as the only true God. And they're saying, if those statements are true, then logically it can't also be true that the son is genuine deity. So it's not a biblical case against the deity of Christ. It's a logical one. And to their credit, that's an appropriate thing to do. If, if the Holy Spirit has breathed out the, the scriptures, um, and if the Holy Spirit, being God, cannot lie, cannot err, and is fully logical and rational, um, then we the, the Holy Spirit is not going to breathe out text that is logically incoherent. Um, and, and require Christians to believe something that is nonsensical, logically incoherent. So, so this is, that's really where the argument against the deity of Christ is to be found, not in scripture, but in logic. And so I want to address that here for a moment and show that what I've just, that the, that the testimony of the early church that I've just laid out is something that can be embraced um, because it is logical, provided that the scriptural data uh, supports it. Um, but I want to demonstrate that we have no good reason on logical grounds to throw out that unanimous early Christian testimony. Now, where the logic comes in is um, especially when we're discussing the topic of the Trinity. And when we talk about the Trinity, um, and this is something I'll cover in more detail in a future episode of the show, but it's important as sort of the backdrop to the discussion about the deity of Christ. When we talk about the Trinity, we're saying at the core, and, and there are all sorts of ways of making sense of the bullet points that I'm about to display, uh, different trinities, as Dale Tuggy likes to call them. But they're not different trinity theories. They're just different ex they're different um, applications of, of the core Trinitarian doctrine that we're going to look at now, which is that, firstly, there's one and only one God. Trinitarians are monotheists. The Father is this God. The Son is... Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, uh, well, pre-incarnate and post-incarnate, is this God, and the Holy Spirit is this God, but critically, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are eternally personal and distinct. That is to say, the Father isn't the Son, and the Son isn't the Spirit, and the Spirit isn't the Father, and the Spirit isn't some impersonal force, and the Son wasn't some impersonal force, uh, impersonal force at some point prior to his incarnation. Um, they are all, all three of them, eternally personal and distinct from one another. That means that so-called biblical Unitarians like Dale Tuggy are... Um, are non-Trinitarians, and it also means that Oneness Pentecostals are non-Trinitarians because they believe there is only one person that is God, um, and that the Son and the Father are both that one person. Um, so this is what we're talking about when we are expressing the Trinity in its simplest uh, and basic core form. And the issue of logic begins to come in here, because if I say the Father is God, and let's say that I say the Father is A, the variable A, God is the variable B, and is is the is of identity, 
of numerical identity. And then if I say the son, who I'll attach the, the variable c to, is also numerically identical to God, which we are calling b, but the father is not the son, if I want to try and say these three things together, then I'm being logically incoherent. Because if a equals b and b equals c, then a necessarily equals c. It simply is. There's no getting around that. Um, and so, understandably, uh, this is something that, um, uh, that biblical Unitarians and others would call logically incoherent or inconsistent. Um, so the question then is, how can these statements be true uh, if, if, and not logically in incoherent? And the answer is, is that these expressions, the Father is God and the Son is God and the Father is not the Son, those are sort of simplified expressions that simplify something more specific, more precise. Um, and here I'll spell that out. We're not saying that the Father is numerically identical to God. It's not an equal sign. That's what I'm using to represent numerical identity. I'm using the wavy equal sign, which can mean whatever somebody wants it to mean. But in this case, what I mean is that the father is God in the sense that the, the father's being is the being of God. And I'll get to definitions in a moment, but, but bear with me for the, for, for the time being. So when I say the father's God, I'm not saying the father is numerically identical to God. I'm saying the father's being is the being of God. And I'm saying the same thing when I say the son is God. Not that the son is numerically identical to God, but that the son's being is the being of God. It's God's being. And then finally, the father is not the son. Now here I am using numerical identity, but I'm negating it. So the father and the son are not numerically identical persons. They're not the same person. So if we, so, so as long as we properly understand what the terms being and person here mean, there's nothing logically incoherent about it. There's nothing logically inconsistent. Um, uh, so we can say that A, uh, is the squiggly line, uh, the squiggly equals B, and B is a squiggly equals C, but A is, does not equal C, and there's nothing logically incoherent about that. So let's talk about what these terms being and person mean, beginning with person. When I talk about person, and, and I think this is generally true of Trinitarians, um, broadly speaking, a person is an I, a self. Um, a more, more precisely, I would say a rational subject of interpersonal relations or one who, if alive and, and, and properly developed, would be a subject of interpersonal relations. And that's to allow for uh, unborn children, for example. The way that Braxton Hunter, the president of a theological or of a Trinity Seminary, the way he likes the word he likes to use in place of person is an experiencer. So it's the one experiencing uh, things, but the person who's experiencing things—the I, the self, the rational subject of interpersonal relations—is experiencing what it experiences through the being in which it subsists. Being, in Trinitarian terminology, refers to the substance or organic composite of substances in which a person subsists. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, and, and when I talk about substance here, I'm not talking about the way we typically mean substance now, today, and in 21st century English, like uh, a, a tangible material, a substance that you can touch or feel. It's, it's, it's philosophical jargon. A substance refers to a concrete entity. And uh, Christian theology since the beginning has said that God is one 
undivided, simple substance uh, that is spirit. Indeed, Jesus says God is spirit, and he calls for worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. Um, but then there's also human beings, and human beings, the, the person of a human being subsists in an organic composite of substances. Um, the composite, in this case, is soul and body, assuming a traditional Christian dualism, um, which is another topic we'll talk about in future episodes of The Apologetics. But just assuming for the time being, classical, traditional, Christian, dualistic anthropology, human beings are both body and soul. So a human person subsists in the composite of those substances. No human person is complete if they're not alive and embodied. Even if they're disembodied and conscious in an intermediate state, they're still not completely human until their person once again subsists in both soul and body uh, following resurrection. And the reason why I'm using the word organic here is just to say that a person, a person subsists, uh, or the being of a person is the being, uh, the, the, the composite of substances that naturally or organically that person uh, normally subsists in. Um, and this is important for the, in, the incarnation of Christ, um, which hopefully I'll remember to mention how that applies to this issue of organic composites of substances, <laughs> organic composite of substances. So the being is the substance or substances in which person subsists, and the person is the I, the self, the rational subject, the experiencer. Ex the, 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 put another way, the person is the one experiencing, but the one experiencing experiences through or by means of his or her being. Um, if that sounds weird, just consider the, uh, the, the intuitiveness of what I'm about to say regarding this phrase, I worship God with my body, my mind, my soul, my whole being. If, so one of the problems with biblical Unitarians like Dale Tuggy is that they treat person as if it's just a category, a subcategory of being. He'll replace the word person with personal being as if that's what we mean by person. But if person just is being, then what does it even mean to say my whole being? Who's the, who's the one that can speak of my whole being if I just am my whole being? You see, um, if I can speak of my body and also my soul and my mind and indeed my whole, my whole being, everything that makes me, uh, that makes up me, then person has got to be the one speaking of the things that are mine, right? There's got to be a, a, a reasonable distinction between the, the possessor of being and the substances that are possessed by the person, by the possessor. And this is why many Christians are comfortable saying that the doctrine of the Trinity says that uh, God uh, God is three who's and one what. Um, person is a who and being is a what. And so I can say that God is three persons uh, subsisting in one being, meaning he is three who's subsisting in one what. Um, this is a way that uh, uh, James White, for example, on, in Alpha, uh, of Alpha and Omega Ministries on the dividing line often explains the distinction between person and being. And again, it's just a distinction that we have to make to account for the being able to speak of my very being. It means that person, the possessor of my being, is distinct from being itself. Um, 
And the only way that this isn't logical is if who just is a subcategory of what, a type of what, um, in the same way that Dale Tuggy mistakenly treats person if it's just a kind of being, a personal being. As long as these distinctions are in place, this is, ver this is logically coherent. Um, as long as person is just not a type of being and that there's a proper distinction between them, then we can indeed say that one being that is God is simultaneously three persons that subsist in that one being. And by the way, the word subsist here um, is, is uh, again, philosophical jargon, but it refers to something that um, is not a concrete entity of its in and of itself, but it, ref it, is what, it, it is what a concrete entity is by virtue of what it is. Um, let, me, let me give you an example. Uh, take the Earth's magnetic field. Um, the magnetic field that shields the Earth from solar rays coming from the sun and prevents our, allows us to have a functioning atmosphere and ecosystem and everything, that mag and, and of course also is what accounts for magnetic north and south and stuff like that. The magnetic field is not a concrete entity in and of itself. It's not as if there are these um, uh, there are, there are these things called field lines running in in you know uh, regular lines around the Earth in those diagrams that you see of of Earth's magnetic fields. A field like this refers to the activity or forces caused by the concrete entity itself. So we only so with the Earth we have only one concrete entity, one concrete substance, if you will, and that's the Earth. But it's got a magnetic field that refers to the forces um, at play that are that originate from that concrete entity, or that are the forces caused by that concrete entity being what it is and doing what it is. And there's actually other fields than just the magnetic field. There's a gravitational field. Again, there aren't little gravitrons floating around in, in the sky or something like that, that that cause Earth to pull things toward it, including us humans. It's the Earth itself, the concrete entity itself, exerts a f the force of gravity in a pattern or in a, in, in, a, um, in a way that can be visualized as a field. So we could say that the Earth's magnetic field is not the the earth's gravitational field they are two distinct fields but there's only one concrete object and that's the earth so likewise we can say that god is one concrete be one concrete being one concrete entity but the father the son and the holy spirit are persons that subsist in the being of god and they can therefore be treated as distinct from one another they are distinct from one another but there is only one concrete being that is god it's logically coherent even if it um is a little bit confusing or a little bit um, hard to wrap our minds around but should we really expect to be easily able to wrap our minds around god i would i would posit that no we should not be able to so that's what we're saying when we talk about um, the Trinity. We're saying that God is three persons that all subsist in one being. He is three who's and one what, and this is logically coherent. Now, when we talk about the incarnation, when we say that Jesus is both human and divine, we're not saying that he is two concrete beings, um, that, that he is uh, both a human and a God, that there are two Jesuses, one divine and one human. Um, no, the Chalcedonian Creed from about 126 years after the Nicene Creed says, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is co-essential with the Father, acknowledged in two natures, but concurring into one person. So Jesus isn't two persons, a divine person and a human person, um, and he isn't two whole beings independent from one another. He is one 
one person, but his one person subsists uh, in, well, okay, let me back up. Uh, so he's one person, but in the incarnation, he subsists in two natures, and, and we'll look at that here. So prior to the incarnation, when God became man in Jesus Christ, the person of the Son subsisted in only God's being. Right. So prior to the incarnation, the, the son had only one nature, the divine nature. Namely, he, his person subsisted in only the divine being. All right. But post-incarnation, that same person subsists simultaneously in both the divine being that he subsisted in prior to the incarnation and his human being that came into existence at his conception, at the incarnation. Um, so if we go back to the terminology I went through a moment ago, saying that according to the Trinity, God is three persons subsisting in one being. Now I can use similar terminology to describe the, the incarnation. I can say that Jesus is one person subsisting in two beings. All right. Um, so and, and this again, because we've properly distinguished between person and being, um, we can. This is something that is logically coherent. There's no reason on logical grounds for ignoring and, and dismissing what Christians from the very beginning said about Jesus being Yahweh. But of course, that doesn't mean that we should be, should believe it. It just means we have to take what they said very seriously and embrace it, provided that there is sufficient biblical grounds to do so. And there is sufficient reams and reams of biblical data for accepting this early unanimous teaching of the church. But here's the thing. Very often in debates between Trinitarians like me and non-Christian, non-Trinitarians, very often the, the debate, um, the person on my side of the debate will throw a whole host of texts um, out, you know, just quote them one after the other like a shotgun um, in, a, in an attempt to overwhelm his opponent or her opponent and the audience um, with, with a, an impression of just how all throughout the text of Scripture this reality is. And I get, I get the temptation to do that. I myself have the temptation to do that. Um, and there are indeed lots and lots of texts that I think um, substantiate this reality. But here's the problem. Um, in a debate, when you, or even just in normal conversation with somebody who doesn't agree with you, if you, lay, if you cite 20 texts, all of which support your view, invariably some of those texts are going to be stronger support for your position than others. And what, and what can happen is that your opponent or your interlocutor, if it's not a formal debate, um, your conversation partner, that person can offer plausible sounding readings, alternative readings to your own, um, for, the, for the lower hanging fruit, the, more, the, the, the less powerful texts that you have cited. So for example, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. That's powerful support for um, the, the deity of Christ. But if you look at the writings and, and um, podcast episodes of somebody like Dale Tuggy, they're going to offer readings that, to at least some people, are going to sound very plausible. Now, if in a debate or in a conversation you throw out 20 texts like these, and let's say 15 of them are weaker than the other five, and the other five are extremely powerful, in a, in, a, in a limited amount of time that takes place in a conversation or in a debate, the other person is going to be able to offer plausible sounding alternatives to a few of those 15 weaker texts. And anybody watching is going to think, oh, well, you know, he offered plausible sounding texts to those. Maybe there's plausible readings um, to the other ones that the Trinitarian brought up. 
And so in my debate and in, in the book and in the live debate, um, I have focused on three texts that I think are the most powerful um, support for the deity of Christ. Um, and I think that if you watch the live debate and if you read the, the written debate, you'll find that those texts didn't get adequately dealt with at all um, by Dale Tuggy, my opponent. And that's the beauty of focusing on the most powerful support possible. Nobody is going to walk away from watching that debate or reading the book and thinking, eh, yeah, Tuggy offered some plausible sounding things of these texts, so maybe these other ones that he didn't have time to get to, maybe there's something to him, you know? It just can't happen. Now, I had hoped to go through all three of the texts that I went through in my debate in the presentation I'm giving now, but I was scrambling to finish the PowerPoint presentation that you're looking at right now all the way up until about 60 seconds prior to the stream starting. Uh, and so I'm only going to focus on two, one of them in, in a great deal of depth and the other one in not so much. And what I'm going to offer from these two texts, or what I'm going to argue, is that the New Testament clearly identifies Jesus as the pre-existent creator and God of Israel, who, though existing in the form of God, became a man to serve those from whom he deserves service. Now, you'll be able to tell from the language that I've used to craft this statement, you'll be able to tell what one of the two texts that I'm going to be looking at is, and that's Philippians 2, 5-8, the so-called Carmen Christi, or Hymn of Christ. Uh, one of the second text that I had that I went through in the debate with Dale Tuggy was Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Um, and I'll just let you watch that live debate or buy the book if you want to um, look at our interaction on that text. But the, but the third one or uh, in the book, in the debate, and the second one in this presentation is Matthew 23, 37. And I'm cross-referencing the parallel text in Luke 13, 34. So if you have the opportunity to get your Bibles open and follow along, um, those are the passages that you'll want to look at. And we're going to look at Philippians 2, 5 and 8 first. Um, the text begins, or these verses begin with Paul saying Jesus was in the form of God. And the Greek word translated form is marfe. Um, it's where we get morphological or, or um, uh, you know, uh, morphology from, right? F uh, it, morphology refers to the forms of letters and words in, in, a, in a language and, um, and the changes that the form undergoes given the context. Uh, blame, <laughs> my wife says in the chat, blame the zombies on the Xbox for monopolizing your free time. No, that wasn't their fault. Um, but it's true. I, I, I was, and actually it wasn't on the Xbox star. I was playing the, the, the card game that Sawyer created with him and, and Miles. And you know what? I, I don't apologize for sacrificing time presenting this presentation so I could spend time playing card games with my 11 and, and six year old. Um, and Flaming Sword Podcast, thanks for joining and tuning in. I appreciate it. You'll, you'll have missed a lot by now, but as you said, there are replays. You can go back and watch this afterwards. So, Marfe is the word form here. And some prior to our debate, um, Dale Tuggy had advocated in his written and, and, and audio material a view of Philippians 2, according to which... Jesus was in the form of God in the way that Adam was in the image of God. Um, and he, uh, and this is a view that actually is sadly somewhat popular amongst some New Testament scholarship. Um, James Dunn, for example, who I think recently passed away, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but but uh, in the debate itself, uh, especially in the written version of the debate, Dale Tuggy backed away from that um, from that reading of Philippians 2, and rightfully so, because the reality is this word marfe, the form of God, is never, ever 
used to refer to the image of God in which human beings are created. In 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 Greek, the 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 word typically used is akon, which is where we get the word icon from. All right, and akon is used in the old in the uh, Greek translation of the um, Old Testament called the Septuagint, as well as in the New Testament and in the Greek Jewish literature in between the the intertestamental literature. The word akon is used dozens of times to refer to the image of God in which God uh, in which human beings are created. Marfe or or form is never used, never, and yet prior to our debate, Dale Tuggy wanted to think that. That's what Marfe here refers to. And glad he changed his mind. Unfortunately, as you'll see if you read the debate book, he, he didn't come up with anything better. Um, what form does refer to, though, is something, the form of God, at least, is, is something that is uniquely God's. So, for example, Philo, in his On the Embassy to Gaius, says the form or Marfe of God is not a thing which is capable of being imitated by an inferior one. So the only way that Paul could say Jesus was in the form or marfe of God is if Jesus is not inferior to God. Um, Paul goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here again, you know, prior to the debate, Dale Tuggy, like J Jimmy Dunn did and, and others, um, tried to argue that what Paul is doing is comparing Jesus, or rather contrasting Jesus with Adam. Adam was in the image of God, but he refused to reach it. He refused um, or, or didn't refuse to try and achieve likeness with God. Remember Adam um, thinking that if he ate from the tree, uh, well, Adam and Eve both, but thinking that if they ate from the tree, they would be like God. Um, Paul says, ah, theolodad, theolodad. Oh, yeah, Re reference to my playing with my sons earlier. Um, Adam was in the image of God, and he and Eve both were in the image of God, and they tried to become like God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And um, what what prior to the debate, Dale Tuggy, along with people like Jimmy Dunn and others, were saying is that Paul is contrasting Jesus with Adam. Adam was in the image of God and did try to become equal to God. Jesus is, is in the image of God, but did not uh, consider reaching out and um, trying to achieve equality with God. But we've already seen the problem with form of God. There's no, there is no semantic overlap uh, in, in the minds of the Hebrew authors between form and image. Um, but equality with God is another one. There, you know, uh, the Jews try to stone Jesus at one point because they say he is trying, he is claiming to be equal with God, um, and you see this in the intertestamental literature as well. Um, so that we know that that's not what Paul is doing. Um, and critical to understanding what Paul is doing is understanding this Greek word that I've put next to grasped, harpagmas. Um, I'm quoting here from the English Standard Version, the ESV, but many translations read similarly uh, as if Jesus refused to reach out and take something that he didn't already have. That's the way that the English translations read. And it's understandable why some of them read that way. It's because in certain kinds of grammatical structures, harpagmas does indeed refer to the kind of booty that you that a pirate might steal, right? Something that you that you would reach out and take, snatch away, something to be snatched. But what these translations, the ones that render it this way, and there are ones that render it the right way, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, what they're failing to neglect is the grammatical construction here. Um, it's really important. The, 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 the construction here is what's called a double accusative construction. Um, Jesus is the subject of the construction. The verb is did not count. And then there's a direct object, and that direct object is equality with God. 
Harpagmas is not the is not the direct object of the verb. It's the complement to the direct object. It would be like this sentence, a second sentence that I've got in the table on the screen right now. I am the subject. Consider that's a verb. Bart Ehrman, um, that's a scholar who is no longer a Christian and published a book arguing, among other books, arguing that uh, Jesus didn't wasn't originally thought to be God. So I as a subject, consider as the verb, direct object is Bart Ehrman, and the complement is a scholar. I consider Bart Ehrman a scholar, all right? Um, what, uh, what people have been able to uh, discover is that in the time of Jesus and for a time after and before, when harpagmas or its synonym harpagma, which is just the feminine version of harpagmas, uh, at least it's, it seems that way to me, but form in terms of form, it's just the feminine version of harpagmas. Um, but scholars will tell you that indeed they are um, they are synonymous. And whenever harpagmas or its synonym harpagma are the is the complement in a direct object complement construction like this, where the verb is a verb of consideration or thinking or deeming, you know, whatever, um, the word refers to something to be taken advantage of or exploited. So the third example I gave here, Theogonies uh, did not count the matter Harpagma, that's from Heliodorus's Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopica. There's a young and virile man named Theagonese, and there's a woman named Arsace, um, or Arsace, or however you would pronounce that, who is coming on to Theagonese, trying desperately to uh, enter into a romantic relationship with Theagonese. But Arsace's servant, Sybil, marvels because even though Theagonese had this, this beautiful young uh, uh, Arsace right there at his disposal for sexual or other romantic um, activities, nevertheless, Sybil marvels that the young man does not count the matter an advantage. You see, he had, he had the thing. Right? He, he didn't consider Arsace's romantic advances out of reach. He didn't, he didn't consider it an advantage. And so um, Roy Hoover is, is the groundbreaking um, the author of an article in the Harvard Theological Review called The Harpagmas Enigma, where he lays all of this out. He concludes that a translation appropriate to the context of Philippians and confirmed by comparable usage, like the usage I just pointed you to, would be this. He did not regard being equal with God as something to take advantage of. And Susan, slam RN in the chat, um, offers up one, uh, I'd be interested to know, Susan, which translation you've quoted from, but it's, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Um, and there are indeed translations that read that way. I didn't think to have Logos open so that I could pull them up, but while I talk and kill and, and prevent dead air <laughs> from, uh, from being uh, played right here, I will bring up... Um, Logos on my other monitor, and I'll put, pull up Philippians 5 and um, look for, so for example, the New, the New International Version, it is, it is generally speaking a much more dynamic translation, a less word-for-word -word literal translation than like the ESV or the NASB, but it nevertheless gets this one right. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? It's not smoothing something out. It's simply recognizing what the word harpagmas means when it's the complement in a um, in a uh, direct object complement construction. 
Uh, and there are others. The Okay, so I'm guessing Susan was reading from the NRSV. Yep, that's right. The NRSV says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Um, and I'll give you one more, um, or two more. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, otherwise known now as the Christian Standard Bible, it also says used for his own advantage. And the NET, well, the NET doesn't do a great job. It says it's something to be grasped. Um, so never mind. That's an example of the bad translations. But you can see that there are a number of at least three translations that get this right. Um, that Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to take advantage of. So what did he do instead of take advantage of it? He emptied himself. And, and emptied himself, by the way, here is, is a metaphor. Um, it's, not refer, it's the same language with which Paul talks about emptying himself in sacrifice to others. It, it means pouring yourself out. I, I just used, pour, I would just thought of pour, pour yourself out just the other day when I was thinking of serving somebody I deeply cared about. It's just a metaphor referring to serving. And that's the point here. Jesus didn't have to serve anybody. He existed in the very form of God, the form of God that Philo said no inferior can imitate or exist in. It's, it's the same equality with God that the Jews sought to stone Jesus for when they said Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. He didn't, he didn't fail to consider reaching out and grabbing it. He refused to consider the form of God in which he was already in and the form of God he or, and the equality with God he already enjoyed. He refused to consider that something to take advantage of or exploit. Instead, he emptied himself, took the form of servant, born in the likeness of men. This is clear-cut incarnation, Trinitarian incarnation. It can't be Unitarian because he couldn't be um, equal to God the Father if he is God the Father. So you've got at least a binity there, the Father and the Son. Um, and he had to have been truly God because he had this equality with God and he was in the form of God um, and he refused to take advantage of it. Now, this doesn't mean that in the incarnation he ceased to be in the form of God or ceased to be equal with God. Indeed, the, the word translated was up here in though he was in the form of God is a tense of the Greek verb that refers to ongoing um, activity. It's not a, a, a stative thing like a punctiliar at a moment in time. Um, he, he, since the incarnation, is both God and man, just as we talked about earlier when I was summarizing what the incarnation means. So... Um, if you read the book, you'll see that there was no meaningful interaction um, on Dale Tuggy's part with this text. And um, I've, in fact, I'll tell you this much, even some other so-called biblical Unitarians have um, argued that with the other Unitarians, we've got to adopt, we've got to refuse to, um, we've got to abandon this sort of Adam comparison that Dale Tuggy originally thought it was, and now embrace some other view. But they're, they're, the other views that they try to, um, that they offer in in, for reading this text don't hold up to, uh, to the details that we've looked at so far either. So I maintain still that Philippians 2 is an insurmountable text for um, Unitarians to make sense of. They simply can't make sense of it. Um, the only way to make sense of Philippians 2, the Carmen Christi, the hymn of Christ, is to recognize that Jesus is and was indeed truly God, um, but he refused to exploit his divinity, his, de his deity. And he became a human being to serve other human beings. All right. Now, <clears throat> the other text that I mentioned, um, and I'm going to get through this really quickly because I'm already over an hour. And because, as I said, I didn't have time to prepare the slides as much as I would have liked. 
is Matthew 23, 37, which reads, Jesus, this is the lament over Jerusalem. And Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Um, and then, like I said, the, there's a parallel in Luke 13, 34. Now, there's more that I'm going to, um, in, there's more in the book. Uh, then I'm going to go through here. So again, I'd encourage you to check out the book because there's more to this text in support of Jesus' deity than merely what you're looking at on the screen right now. But that's all I'm going to have time. That's all I had time to prepare before the show today. Um, so there'll be more in the book, and I would encourage you to check it out. But if you aren't already familiar with how this text um, is used by people like me in support of the deity of Christ, um, then you might look at this and wonder, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus being God? And I get that because, unfortunately, we, well, for two reasons. Firstly, we are uh, Westerners some 2,000 years removed from the imagery that Jesus is using here of protective birds. But secondly, this is uh, because we're so far removed, uh, not many Trinitarians and not many defenders of the deity of Christ have offered this text up in support of the deity of Christ. Well, I want to change that. Simon Gathercole is one who does, um, and I am a second. There's a lot. There's probably a lot of others. I just haven't found them. Um, but I'd love to see Trinitarians, Orthodox Christians, believers in the deity of Christ, um, re-embrace this text as defense for the deity of Christ. And, and here's why. Jonathan Rowlands, in an article in Novum Testamentum called Jesus and the Wings of Yahweh, he writes this, Bird imagery in the ancient Near East, when it's protective, always concerns a deity. Um, the ancient Near East just refers to the, um, the, the ancient Near East area of the world that Israel was in, that Jesus ministered in. Um, it pre-existed, obviously, the, the time of the New Testament. Um, it's all it's it's the it's the area of the world in which the Old Testament was written, and um, in which the Jewish authors of the New Testament would have been with which they would have been very familiar. And all throughout the imagery in the ancient Near East, uh, protective bird imagery always referred to deity. So, for example, this is a Gilgamesh relief. Gilgamesh is the king under uh, the, the, the thing that those satyrs are holding up. And on top of the thing that they're holding up is the, uh, the winged sun disk. This is ubiquitous all throughout ancient Near East iconography. Um, and the king is the one under, the, the thing above is deity. It's the deity that provides protection and success and virility and, you know, everything that the king hopes to get from the deity. We also see it in these stamp seals from Samaria and Shechem. Um, these and that Gilgamesh relief, by the way, are from the 9th century BC, so the 800s BCE. Um, and it's not just in the ancient Near East around the Jewish people, it's the Jewish people themselves that sometimes uh, adopted this iconography of the winged sun disk. This is a clay bulla uh, from the Temple Mount, found at the Temple Mount from the 8th or 7th century BCE. So this is the 700s and the 600s BC. And the text says above and below the winged sun disk there, belonging to Hezekiah, king of Judah. What does the winged sun disk represent? It represents Yahweh, God. 
But it's not just in ancient Near East, ancient Near Eastern iconography that protective bird imagery always concerns a deity. It's also that way all throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, whenever, as Jonathan Rollins puts it in his article, every instance of protective bird imagery in the Hebrew Bible refers to Yahweh's protection of Israel. Um, I, uh, I didn't have time to prepare the slides, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Or did I? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> so so uh, let me give you one example, and then you can look up others on your own if you like. Um, but an example is um, Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, Yahweh alone guided him. Ruth 2.12 is another one, Psalms 17.8 and 9, 36.7, 57.1, 61.4, 63.7, and 91.4 all use, and those are the only places where protective imagery is used in the Hebrew Old Testament, they're all references to Yahweh. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing, his hearers would have unanimously, universally associated that imagery with deity. Um, this is, I, I don't think the significance of this should be, uh, can be overemphasized. Um, in, in the debate book I, uh, with, with Dale Tuggy, I think he tried to counter this text by saying, at some point, the word surf began to be used not just of the, you know, standing on a board and, and going over waves in the ocean, but also to surfing the internet. But just think about the problem with that, the, the, the absurdity of that response. It's, it's vapid. The reason that response is vapid is because the word surf didn't have the theological overtones that protective bird imagery had in the minds and hearers of everybody that heard Christ say these words and the initial readers of these words. So you, the idea that Jesus would self-appropriate protective bird imagery like this knowing full well that everybody who heard him and everybody who would read uh, what the apostles would have recorded him saying would have associated this with deity, um, but that he's not actually claiming to be divine is just the height of absurdity. And again, as you'll see in the debate book and in the live debate, there's no meaningful interaction on the Unitarians' part on this text. So... Um, as I said, I would have gone to Hebrews as well if I'd had more time to prepare these slides. And indeed, in future episodes of The Apologetics, I will dive even more deeply into these texts and others on an episode-by-episode -episode basis. But what I wanted to do um, in this episode was give you these two, what I think are two of the most powerful biblical texts in support of the deity of Christ. Uh, Philippians 2, 5-8, and Matthew 23, 37, with its um, parallel in Luke 13, 34. I wanted to give you those texts and the reason why they are... <laughs> so somebody in the chat says vapid. Uh, had, he had to Google the word vapid. I think the word vapid means something like empty... Um, uh, you know, um, yeah, nothing, it, offering nothing that is stimulating or challenging. It's, it's, it's weak. It doesn't have any substance to it. I wanted in this first episode, or this second episode of The Apologetics, and the first one on the, on the deity of Christ, to give you those two texts, because um, many other texts you're going to use are, I would argue, going to be less effective 
uh, in discussing this topic with convinced Unitarians. And I want to give you something that's going to leave them with nothing to say. And they won't have anything meaningful to say. They'll say some words, uh, but they won't answer your objections. So yeah, keep John 1-1 in your back pocket, you know, and, and numerous other texts. Jesus saying in Revelation, I am the Alpha and Omega, things like that. Keep those in your back pocket and, and bring them up. But I would treat those as supplementary to texts like these, which I think are the most powerful and have no meaningful response on the part of Unitarians. And then, like I said, learn what the terminology, what, what Trinitarian terminology means. Um, a person uh, is not just a kind of being. A person is the self that possesses being. Um, that's the, the experiencer who experiences by means of his or her being. And being is the substances or substance in which person subsists. Um, and, uh, and remember that when we say the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, we're not saying the Father is numerically identical to God. We're saying the Father has the being um, of God's being, and uh, or better yet, more precisely, the Father subsists in the being of God. So when you say the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father isn't the Son, the Son isn't the Spirit, and the Spirit isn't the Father, you're not contradicting yourself. You're just using the word is in two different ways, which is fairly normal. The word is actually means a lot of things. When I say I am sad, or, or Chris is sad, I'm not using the is of numerical identity. Um, and that's not what's going on here either, at least with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is God. Um, and then lastly, remember your uh, early Christian history. The Nicene Creed from 325 CE, Arian sympathizing creeds in 341 and 351, Ignatius of Antioch from the late 1st to early 2nd century, Justin Martyr from the mid 2nd century, Melito of Sardis from the late 2nd century, the Epistle of Diognetus in the late 2nd century, Irenaeus of Lyon from the late 2nd century, Tertullian from about 200 CE, all of them and others. Uh, identified Jesus as Yahweh, the one God of Israel, from the beginning, and his deity and his incarnation have always been definitional of Christianity. That's the historic reality. And Unitarians may not like that, and they may try to um, engage in all sorts of gymnastics to try and explain it away. So, for example, um, in his debate with me and in a, some, some of his other material, including published journal articles, Dale Tuggy argues that uh, Tertullian and Theophilus didn't believe that Jesus is, is Yahweh, but that's because he's, mis he's, he's relying on English translations of what those authors said. If you look at the language, and I demonstrate this in the book, which is another reason to go buy it, I demonstrate that the, uh, the, the language the words that they actually used uh, defeat Dale Tuggy's own reading of what they had to say. So Unitarians may not like that the church has from the very beginning believed that Jesus is Yahweh. Um, they may not like that the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of incarnation are logically coherent. And yeah, they're right that many Christians can't don't properly understand the doctrines of Trinity and incarnation and can't articulate it properly. And they are prone, they are they are prone to fall victim to sophisticated Unitarians like Dale Tuggy. So this is really important. Um, and, and, and this is the what the appeal that I'll leave you with uh, as, as we wrap up today's episode of The Apologetics. This topic has got to be something that you um, know in and out, uh, inside and outside. 
You can't let this be a topic that, okay, yeah, I know Jesus is God. Move, let's move on to the, the, next, uh, the next topic. No, because you're going to encounter Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or so-called biblical Unitarians like Dale Tuggy or Oneness Pentecostals. And you're not going to know um, what the language that you use means more precisely. And so you're going to be prone to fall victim to them. You're not going to know the how to counter the claims that some of the early church fathers didn't believe Jesus is Yahweh. Um, and I have offered you that here so get the book um and if you don't know that you're going to pray you're going to fall victim to people that point you to the writings of church fathers that sound in english like that's what they're like they're denying the deity of christ and if you don't have the strongest texts in your back pocket ready to explain and 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 get into detail with your interlocutor then you're going to fall victim or at least you risk falling victim to a sophisticated interlocutor I don't want you to be the next Dale Tuggy. You, I'm talking to you right now, you, whoever's watching me right now. I don't want you to be the next Dale Tuggy. No, he, the reason I say that is because he counted himself a Christian, but whenever he would talk to pastors and others, um, they couldn't explain and defend the doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation to him, and he eventually lost his, what I would say, his Christian faith. His, his ortho, He was no longer a Christian, and it's because he was not taught well. He was not taught uh, the, the issues that we've gone through today. Don't let that be yourself. Um, get uh, If you haven't already made this a topic of serious, in-depth in study, do it now. Spend some time in it. Because this is a more important topic than whether you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist. The deity of Christ is, is a much more important topic than whether you're a cessationist or a continuationist when it comes to the spiritual gifts. It's more important than young earth versus old earth versus theistic evolution. It's more important than preterism versus futurism versus idealism and historicism. It's more important than, um, you know, uh, complementarianism versus egalitarianism. This is more important than all of those. And if you've spent hardly any time grasping the material that we've just scratched the surface on today, and you've spent a lot of time on, on any one of those other things, you're a victim waiting to happen. So that's my plea to you. Please take this issue seriously. Spend some time in it. Reach out to me at that email address on your screen if you have questions and want some suggestions as to where to explore further. Um, but one book that I would definitely encourage uh, for you to get and explore further is the one that I mentioned at the beginning of the PowerPoint deck. Uh, just go to amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date and get the book Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? And then let me know what you think about it. Um, I'd be encouraged to hear what you have to say. Or maybe I'd be discouraged if you have very negative things to say, but if you do have negative things to say about it, make sure you substantiate your claims. Um, I've gone for an hour and 20 minutes, so I'm going to wrap it up now. Thank you so much for joining live, and if you're watching this um, on demand after it was archived in... Oh, wait, sorry. There were some chat in the thing. Um, glad you see... Or did I see the Anthony Rogers versus Unitarian debate this weekend? No, I'll check that out. Thanks, Susan. Um, okay, now... Uh, thank you for those of you that are watching live and or that have been watching live and thank you also if you're watching this after it was archived to the Theopologetics YouTube channel. Remember we are live every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. So today is Monday, August 24th. Next week, Monday, August 30th, there will not be an episode of Theopologetics. But there will be an episode of Rethinking Hell live at 6 p.m. Pacific, so go to youtube.com slash rethinkinghell slash live and watch it there. 
two weeks from today, which is um, September 7th at 6 p.m. at youtube.com slash theapologetics slash live. That's when the next episode of The Apologetics will, will stream live. And um, again, my plan is to address the question, is election arbitrary in Calvinism? And this will be a response to my friend and fellow faculty at Trinity Seminary, Leighton Flowers. So if you want to bone up in preparation for this episode of The Apologetics, then just watch any video from Leighton Flowers, just about any video, not, not his 60 second ones, but any of his longer ones. And you'll probably hear him, at least from the past month or so, you'll hear him claim that election is arbitrary in Calvinism. So you'll know why he says it and what he says, and then come back and watch The Apologetics in two weeks, Monday, August, or September 7th, 6 p.m. Um, and I'll look forward to seeing you then. And don't forget, if you're looking for a, a Christian education, a higher education at a, um, at, an, at a cost, both in terms of time and money that you can afford, go to trinitysem.edu, T-R-I-N-I-T-Y-S-E-M.edu. And check out the Trinity Commission on Facebook for the other fine shows, including Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101, um, of which I am thankful to be a part uh, as the apologetics. So thank you guys so much. And I'll look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Take care. I've been your host, Chris Date. And thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...